Our first reading from Romans chapters 11 and 12. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For he has known who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Whereas in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. And the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, we write. Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 16th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Geography matters. It's a strange thing to say in a world that doesn't seem to care where things are, or even to be able to find them on a map. Time after time you see people go out on the street and ask people, where is this country or that country, and no one can find anything anymore. And yet on my shelf, I have two commentaries that I love on the geography of the New Testament. Because where things happen actually does matter. It can help us understand the text better, understand what's going on better. And here in our text today, it's chock full of important information about 
where things are taking place. If you think about it, here in this area, you have your own gates of hell, the seven gates of hell, which I didn't know about until like two days ago when Pastor Walter mentioned it. You can look this stuff up. But supposedly, if you go through the seventh one, which is here in Collinsville, at midnight, after you've gone through the other six, end on the seventh one, the urban legend is that you'll be transported to hell itself. Now imagine, though, if Jesus said the gates of hell will not stand against his church, if he was standing right there at that seventh gate. That would get your attention. It would have some added meaning to what he's talking about. And so, too, today, Jesus says what he says and Peter's confession is said in a particular place at a particular time. We're going to look at that so we can help us better understand what it means that Jesus, the Son of Man, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, will build his church. As I mentioned, the setting is actually quite important here. See, Jesus is near several important sites. He's by this massive rock that has a cave under it with water flowing out that indeed the pagans thought were the very gates of Hades, the gates of hell, the gates to the underworlds. And above that, there were a bunch of idols. You had the idol to Pan, the, the god of nature, an idol to Zeus, who was their chief god, god of thunder and lightning, very close related to the Canaanite god Baal. You had an idol to Hermes, the messenger of the gods. You also had one to Nemesis, the god of retribution for those who would dare to challenge the gods. So too, you had Mount Hermon right there. And Mount Hermon is also significant because in Jewish thought, it too was a place of the dead. It too was a place where fallen angels had come down. And then, as well, we have this taking place near Caesarea Philippi, near the temple of Caesar Augustus. That is, they were worshiping Augustus as the Son of God. That was one of his titles. The Son of God, built in honor of him who was actually dead, and his dad, Julius Caesar, also dead. And yet there they offered sacrifices to him. And it's there in this place where all of these things happen. And so, when Jesus says the gates of hell, they knew what he was talking about. And remember, here in this place, the gates of hell were keeping people in. So the souls could not escape. That was important in their thinking. They could not get out. So here in the place of demons and fallen angels and the dead and these idols, Jesus makes this declaration. Geography matters. We're going to see this unfold in just a moment, but you need to step back and realize that where Jesus is and why he says what he says is important. He didn't choose to say it anywhere else. I came across a commentary that said it didn't really matter that he said it here, and I'm thinking, why not? He could have said it anywhere, but he did not. He said it here in this place for a reason. Before we get into that, let's step back, because it's easy for us. We look at this kind of crass idolatry, a, a temple to the emperor. We look at these stone figures carved out above the opening to the river, and we think, oh, how foolish. They bow down to stone. 
don't they know any better? Yet the Bible says those aren't the only idols. That whatever you fear, love, and trust in above all things, whatever you look to when you're afraid, when times are tough, that that thing, whatever it is, is your God. That whatever gives you your identity, who you think you are, whatever gives you security in this life, whatever gives your life meaning, I-S-M-ism. So whether it's hedonism, if you find that in pleasure, or maybe it's materialism, you find it in money and stuff, or maybe it's moralism, you find it in your own goodness and your own good works. Whatever that thing is, money, power, fame, pleasure, whatever, whatever gives you identity, security, and meaning, that is your God's. And while you may not bow down to stone or to metal idols, whenever you put your trust in those things, you are worshiping them. That's what worship is, to fear, love, and trust something above all things. The problem, of course, for the pagans that Jesus was saying this around and for us today is that these gods offer promises that they cannot keep. They don't give you what they promise. They lead you astray from the only true God who can actually give what he says. Which is why what Jesus says about himself and what Peter says about Jesus is so important here. Jesus says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? I mean, Pastor Walter, before we came out, that all of these titles and things in this passage, you could preach sermons just on each one alone. The Son of Man, Jesus takes for himself from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, you have this great Rome scene. The Ancient of Days is upon the throne. And one looking like the Son of Man comes to him. And the Ancient of Days gives him power and rule over all nations. So that in Matthew 28, what does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. He is the Son of Man. He has power and authority over all those things. He has authority over all the kings, over all the kingdoms. He has a power and authority over all the so-called gods of this world. We'll see in a moment one of the amazing things about this is that he shares that power with us, his people, church. See, the church is, in fact, a different, a separate empire, a separate kingdom among the kingdoms of this world. It is that rock, important imagery, that comes out of the mountain and rolls and rolls and rolls in Daniel chapter 2, crushes the kingdoms of this world, and becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. Jesus' kingdom is always in conflict with the kingdoms of this world. That is why, by the way, that is why Christians are often the first ones persecuted when a government wants to take over everything. Because we confess and we say that there is a Lord above the president, above Congress. We say there is a Lord above every king. We say there is a king of kings and Lord of lords. At the end of the day, that we bow to no one but him, ultimately. He has the And the disciples say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? 
Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a fantastic confession. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one promised in the Old Testament. Right? Think about who was anointed in the Old Testament. It was the prophets, the priests, and the kings. And Jesus is the anointed one. He is the prophet. The one who fully and perfectly speaks and gives to us God's word. He is the priest, the one who doesn't just offer sacrifices, but offers up himself as a sacrifice. And who even now intercedes on your behalf. He is the king. The one who rules and reigns over all things by the power of his word even right now. And he is indeed the son of the living gods. Think about it where they're standing as Peter makes this great confession. Death, destruction, damnation, pictured all around them. And Peter says, you're the son of the living God, the true God. You're it. You're the one who's going to defeat all of these things that we're standing among right now. And indeed, that's what the Bible tells us, that Jesus does indeed defeat all these other things. That he defeats death and hell itself. That he defeats all of these demons and fallen angels. Colossians 2 tells us that he disarms the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places. Where? On his cross. As he suffers and dies for your sin, he takes from them the power they have over you by delivering you from your sins. Delivering you from death and hell. He is the Son of Man, the Son of the living God, and he proves it in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Indeed, he is the prophet, the priest, the king, the Christ. And so, too, one of the things Jesus is calling for us today is, who do we say that he is? Do we confess with our mouth, with our very lives, that he indeed is the Christ, the Son of the living gods? Do we confess in the face of death and hell and the gods of this world and the demons and the fallen angels? We boldly say... You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and there is no other. Jesus says, you're exactly right, Peter. And as we saw several weeks ago, he tells him once again, you didn't figure this out on your own. My Father revealed it, just as he has to reveal it to us. What does he say? You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now this is a very contentious passage in our own history, even as a Lutheran church. Let's look at several key things before we get to the contentious part. First, this is the first time Jesus uses the word church for the church. The Greek word is ekklesia. It means literally called out. It's the Greek word for an assembly of people. You call them out, they gather together. It's the word used throughout the entire Old Testament, the Greek translation of it, for the gathering of God's people. Jesus says that he is going to build his church. Now we have to understand, too, what Jesus means by church. Sometimes we talk about the church visible, the church invisible, or perhaps better, the church hidden. Right? The visible church is where you're at right now, gathered around word and sacraments. 
the church is, our confessions say, wherever the word of God is purely preached, the sacraments are correctly administered. That is the church of God. The problem is, though, I cannot see into your hearts. I cannot see into the hearts of anyone. I do not know who all in here is a Christian. I do not know who all in the world is a Christian. I have to take people by their confession. But God knows. God knows every single person that is hidden. So we talk about that as the invisible or hidden church. Hidden from our eyes, not from God's. God sees it perfectly. I remember for years since high school, I've been interested in the persecuted church and studying and reading up on it and, and following things like Voice of the Martyrs and different global relief efforts for the persecuted church. When I was in seminary, I read about the Siberian Lutheran Church, who even now, today, is still suffering under all things going on between Russia and Ukraine, although we don't often think about them because they're in Russia. But there was a woman, I was reading her story, for 35 years she had no pastor. No Christians around her. They'd all been sent out. They'd all either been killed or deported. All she had was her Bible, her small catechism, and she prayed daily for a pastor. Had you looked at that town, the church would have been completely hidden. No one would have ever seen it. And yet, it's a faithful, pious woman praying to God, awaiting to receive the Holy Supper. And finally, after 35 years, she did. God has his people, he has his church, even when we cannot see it. And he is, as we'll see more in a moment, going to build it. The confusion comes, though, is that Jesus says he can build his church on this rock, and that's where the confusion comes in. The Roman Catholic Church says this rock is Peter himself. That he is the first pope. If you haven't figured it out, we do not agree with that interpretation. Otherwise, we'd still be Roman Catholic. However, our confessions don't say that it's only Peter's confession that the church is built on. In fact, it says what we sang a moment ago that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Peter, his confession, his office of the holy ministry, is what Jesus is going to build his church on. Not just Peter, though, all the apostles. He continues to build it today upon the preaching and teaching of the word of God, on the confession of his saints that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. But you can't separate Peter from his confession. Look at the book of Acts. Peter is key and pivotal to the first part of the book of Acts. And then Paul, the second half. Jesus works through means. And part of that means is the men called into the office of ministry, the men and women that make up the church, who confess the truth about Christ, and others hear it and they believe. That's why Jesus, right after he says this, says he gives them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In our catechism, we say the office of the keys is that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. Jesus gives the forgiveness of sins to his church. Jesus is the cornerstone. Matthew 21, he says, the stone that the builders rejected become the chief cornerstone. And then around that cornerstone is the rest of the foundations of the apostles and prophets. And built on that 
the Bible says, too, you are living stones. You yourselves are living stones that continue to be built onto this church. And as the word goes out from this place, as it goes out from you, more living stones are added to that. That's the picture Jesus is giving us. Jesus wants us to know, though, what the church is and what it's for. Why does it exist? Why does the pastoral office exist? Its primary purpose is what the office of keys is all about, the forgiveness of sins. You need the forgiveness of sins, and Jesus gives it to you through his word and sacrament, which he gives to you in his church. You just sang all about that. It's a wonderful and glorious thing. You, me, everyone needs Jesus to build his church because he builds his church by sending out the gospel. And that's how he builds his church. Through the gospel, through his appointed means, through word and sacraments. One of those sacraments is baptism. If we look at identity, security, and meaning, that's where we as Christians need to find our identity, security, and meaning in our baptism. Who Jesus says you are. Who he says he is and who he says you are. And Jesus keeps building up his church through baptism, through the Holy Supper, through the preaching of the word, until he returns. He will not stop. The gods of this world, the demonic forces of hell, even hell itself, he says, will not stand against his church. When he calls someone from death to life, they come. He brings them. Now, that's not a promise that any particular church or even synod will last forever. That's why I was saying built on the rock, the church does stand even when steeples are falling. But it is a promise that his word will continue to go out. That there will always be Christians till the end of the age, no matter what it looks like outwardly to the world. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus says we can either build on him and who he is and what's confessed here in his church and we can be safe and secure not just as individuals but our homes that are built upon his word or we can be the fool who rejects him and his word and our churches and homes and everything can fall and great is that fall he says. Those are the options he places before us build on him, on that great confession of Peter, on the ministry of the apostles and prophets, to believe those things, to confess those things, to be in this place and receive his gifts, or we can be the fool who rejects them. Either way, Jesus, the Son of Man, the Christ, the Son of the living God, he will build his church, and he's doing it for you and for your salvation and the salvation of the world. Amen. The peace of God passes on our standing. Guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.